Hello all and welcome to another episode of the Strange Matters podcast. Here at Strange Matters, we discuss everything that's bizarre, mysterious, and unexplained. I am Sean, the host for the show. On this episode of Strange Matters, I will be discussing the terrifying and disturbing events surrounding an infamous kidnapping case. In Los Angeles in 1927, a young girl named Marion Parker was abducted by a smooth-talking man right from her own school. Her father would immediately be contacted by a man demanding ransom, a man who would become known by one of his nicknames, The Fox. This story would receive national attention as people all across the country eagerly read any news on the developing story. As more disturbing details were revealed in this developing case, it would ultimately be called at the time the crime of the century. In this episode, I will be going over all the details of the kidnapping, the investigation of the police trying to figure out who this fox was, and the tragic consequences of this unexpected crime. As always, before we begin, a reminder that Strange Matters is made possible by our generous supporters over on Patreon. On Patreon, listeners can pledge a small monthly donation, and in the process can gain access to exclusive bonus episodes only for patrons. This story of The Fox actually serves as a bit of a prequel to the latest Patreon-exclusive episode, which deals with another famous kidnapping case in L.A. that occurred just months after. That episode talks about the case of Christine Collins, who had her son go missing suddenly for a number of months. In that case, the city of Los Angeles was still feeling the impacts of the fallout of the events that will be described in this episode, and involves numerous twists and disturbing revelations throughout the case. If any listeners are interested in hearing exclusive episodes like that, and many others, consider checking out our page at patreon.com strangematters. For this episode, I'd like to thank our newest patron of the show, James. And now, onto the story of the kidnapping of Marion Parker by the mysterious Fox. This case begins in December of 1927. In Los Angeles, California, a prominent banker named Perry Parker lived with his two twin daughters, Marion and Marjorie. On December 15th, a sharply dressed and well-spoken young man walked into the school that the twins went to and visited the principal's office. The man informed the school officials there that Mr. Parker had suddenly fallen seriously ill at work and had to be taken to the hospital. The man told him that Mr. Parker had sent him to retrieve his youngest daughter so that she could be by his side. When the girl's teacher was told what was going on, she was a bit confused by the request. She spoke to the man and asked exactly which girl was wanted, as it seemed a bit odd that only one of the twins would be taken in the situation. The man then told the teacher that he was sent to pick up the smaller daughter, which would be Marion. The teacher and staff were obviously a bit thrown off by all of this, and the man seemed to sense their reluctance. He smiled and told them that he was an assistant banker who worked for Mr. Parker, and if they were worried, they could simply call the bank for themselves and hear about what had happened. The school staff, though, seemed to fall for what would turn out to be a complete bluff, and were swayed by the man's confidence. The teacher went back and pulled Marion Parker out of class, walked with her back to where the young man was, and watched as they both walked out of school together and into the man's car. The staff went back to working as if everything was normal, having no idea that they had just handed over a 12-year-old girl to a complete stranger with a disturbed motive. It was at the end of the school day when Perry Parker would only see one of his daughters come out of school that he knew something was wrong. Immediately he was told about how his supposed assistant banker had picked Marion up from school 
and that Perry was supposed to be in the hospital. The police were called and very quickly started to collect as much information as they could from those who saw this man. It was clear that this was a kidnapping, but who had done it and why was a complete mystery. Just hours after the discovery of the kidnapping, however, Perry Parker would receive a telegram note, and with it would begin a cruel game between him and the abductor. The note read, Fox is my name, very sly, you know. Get this straight. Your daughter's life hangs by a thread, and I have a Gillette razor ready and able to handle the situation. Over the next two days, Parker would receive several more notes from the mysterious kidnapper. The letters would all be signed such names as Fate, Death, and of course, the Fox. One of the follow-up notes finally laid clear the demands that the Fox was after. The letter told Parker to get $1,500 in total, made up of $20 gold certificates, and to be prepared to deliver them to a specified location later that night. This amount would equal to around $20,000 today. The ransom demand note was signed at the bottom from Fox Fate. Also included in this note was one written by Marion, in which she begged her parents to do what the man said. She wrote that the fox had threatened to take her life if her dad did not do as he was supposed to. At the bottom of the page, Marion wrote, P.S. Please, Daddy, I want to come home tonight. Your loving daughter, Marion. Perry Parker, being a fairly well-off banker, certainly had the money to meet the kidnapper's demands. He collected the $1,500 needed, and then waited. The fox would call Parker on that night of December 16th, the day after he had taken Marion from school. The fox gave Parker details and instructions on where and how the exchange would go down. Parker agreed, and then went out to the designated spot. The switch-off would not go exactly as planned, however. When the fox drove slowly along the street to where he would meet up with Perry Parker, he spotted several police cars along the road nearby. Spooked, he drove off, leaving Parker standing and waiting at the spot until it was clear that he would not, in fact, get his daughter back that night. The next morning, Parker would receive another note from the fox, who was furious at Parker for alerting the police to the drop-off spot. He warned the father that if he pulled something like that again, then Marion's life was forfeit. In this note, the fox wrote, I will be two billion times as cautious and clever as deadly from now on. You have brought this on yourself, and you deserve it and worse. A man who betrays his love for his own daughter is a second Judas Iscariot, many times more wicked than the worst modern criminal. If you want aid against me, ask God, not man. Included in the note was yet another letter from Marion, again asking her father to follow the instructions so that she could come home. Once again, the fox called Perry Parker, and a second meeting place and time was established. It was clear that this was Parker's last chance of getting his daughter back. Later in that day, Parker put the ransom money in a black bag and drove off to meet his daughter's kidnapper. This time, no police was alerted. He would be meeting the fox alone, with only hope that this time everything would go as planned. Perry Parker arrived at where the rendezvous spot would be. He got out of his car and waited along the sidewalk, the money bag in hand. He was wary and suspicious of each person passing by, not certain if any of them could be the fox who had kidnapped his daughter. Suddenly, a car swerved from the road and pulled along the curb, stopping right in front of him. Parker immediately saw a young man behind the wheel, and then saw the barrel of a gun pointed at him. 
The fox told him, You know what I'm here for. No monkey business. Parker held his ground and did not yet hand over the bag of money. He asked the fox, Can I see my little girl? The man gestured towards his passenger seat. Parker bent down and saw his daughter there. She looked like she was tightly bound in a sack or cloth, almost like a straitjacket. She was staring straight ahead, her eyes only half opened, almost like she was in a daze and unaware of what was going on. To Parker, his daughter looked like she had been drugged, probably so that she wouldn't try to run away or alert anyone. The fox demanded for Parker to hand the bag over, and satisfied that his daughter was at least in the car, slowly handed the money over. The fox reached out and grabbed the bag, threw it into the back of the car, and then immediately floored the gas and took off driving. Perry Parker screamed furiously at the man and took off running, hopelessly chasing the kidnapper's car as it drove down the street. Fortunately, though, it seemed like the fox did not intend to just drive off. At the end of the block, the car came to a sudden stop. The passenger door opened, and the man inside forcibly shoved Marion out of the car. As Parker sprinted to the spot, the man again took off driving, turning onto a side street and out of sight. The sounds of the commotion had brought passerbys and those around to a stop, and all watched this bizarre scene. Witnesses saw Parker running to the spot where his daughter lay, right where the fox had shoved her onto the street. They saw Parker bend down and pick up his daughter from the ground, and brought her up in his arms. They then watched him pause, and then heard him let out a terrifying, heartbreaking cry. As it turned out, the fox had not pushed Marion out of the car. He had instead pushed out only a part of Marion out of the car. Perry Parker stood in the street screaming as he held the partial corpse of his daughter. Soon enough, the police arrived at the site of the disturbing scene and took stock of the situation. After taking the bundle away from Perry Parker, they were able to see for themselves the grisly and unsettling remains of what the father had found. Inside the bundle of what Marion was wrapped up in, they could see that only the torso and head of the little girl remained. Her limbs had been cut off. Her eyes had been crudely wired open to give the appearance that she was still alive, which had worked on her father when he first glanced at her sitting in the passenger seat. It was also soon apparent that her body had suffered even more damage than could originally be seen. During the following medical examination, it was determined that her internal organs had been removed and that her torso had been stuffed with towels in their place to give her body shape. During the autopsy, it was revealed that young Marion had been dead for around 12 hours, meaning that she was possibly killed right after the first failed attempt of the fox to exchange her for ransom money. The exact cause of death could not be determined for sure, but it was believed to either be from blood loss or asphyxiation. Marion's arms and legs would be found shortly after the fox had gotten the money from Perry Parker, as they would be found neatly wrapped up in newspaper in a nearby neighborhood. Within the day, the news of this horrifying crime spread around the city. The people of L.A. were shocked and terrified that something like this could happen, and news outlets across the country were soon printing the story of the fox and his disturbing murder of a young girl. The police were determined to hunt down and find the man responsible. In what would become the largest manhunt in West Coast history to that point, Thousands of police officers and volunteer angry citizens joined in to try to find the fox. The governor of Mexico heard about this terrible crime and temporarily closed the border and sent guards to patrol it in order to prevent the fox from escaping into his country. Many people pooled their money together 
and formed a large reward of $60,000 for anyone with information leading to the Fox's arrest. Between the school staff and Perry Parker, a description of the man was put out. He was a white man looking around 25 years old. He looked about 5 foot 8 and weighed 150 pounds. He was clean-shaven and had dark, wavy hair. Police artists made sketches of the man and spread them around town. Everyone was suspicious of any man who somewhat fit the description. For a few days after this disturbing crime, several incidents occurred by vigilante citizens who tried to take matters into their own hands. One man who closely fit the Fox's description was picked up by the police officers multiple times as he was walking around the city. Finally, he asked to just remain in jail for a few days until everything was sorted out. Another man was ambushed and set on by a mob of angry citizens and was beaten up very badly. Police arrived on scene fortunately, as the mob was setting up to have the man hung from a streetlight post. Due from both the craziness and danger that was engulfing the city, and the sensationalism caused as the story was the main headline across the country, the Los Angeles Police Department were under intense pressure to find the fox and to solve this case quickly. Their first clue would come from the autopsy. The police were alerted that the bloodstained towels used in stuffing Marion's body was from the Bellevue Arms Apartments. A large police force was immediately sent out, and a room-by-room investigation was launched. Over 100 police officers searched the apartment building in groups. At one room, four officers were greeted by a man who closely fit the description of the fox. The man told them that his name was Donald Evans. While immediately suspicious, Donald did not seem nervous or anxious in any way, and greeted them and told them that they could search through his apartment for as long as they wanted. The policemen walked around the man's apartment, but did not find any visible clues. They left Donald's room and went on to the next one, satisfied with nothing suspicious found in the man's room, and assured by his carefree attitude about the search. While the investigation of the Bellevue Arms apartment turned out empty-handed, other detectives were talking to Perry Parker, trying to gather any information from the man about any possible enemies that could have done such a terrible thing to his daughter. Rather quickly, the police believed that they picked up on one possible suspect. While several people had been let go from Perry's bank in the recent past, one such event stood out to the detectives. Two years before the events of the kidnapping, a man named William Edward Hickman had been fired. He not only had been fired, but he had also been arrested by the police after it was discovered that he was using his position at the bank to steal and forge checks. William Hickman would spend a short time in jail for these crimes. Interestingly, after being released from jail, William Hickman would have the nerve to call up Perry Parker and ask for his job back, which was obviously quickly refused by Parker. After hearing this story, the police would check the fingerprints found on the ransom notes with those found in Hickman's prison file. They would be a match. Finally, the police and everyone involved found their man. William Edward Hickman was the fox, and he was the man responsible for the abduction and murder of 12-year-old Miriam Parker. Hickman's pictures were placed all over the city and in almost every newspaper on the West Coast by the end of the day. The police were informed of possible sightings all over the country after this, but most of them were just cases of mistaken identity. One such sighting did stand out to the police, though, the landlady of the Bellevue Arms apartment contacted the police and told them that one of her tenants was the fox. When the police arrived, the landlady told them that the man was in fact living there, but apparently under a false name. That false name was Donald Evans. The police immediately checked the man's room 
but he was gone. A more thorough search through Donald's apartment this time revealed spots of human blood. If this connection was true, it would appear as if the fox had talked his way out of a possible capture and arrest just days previously, and now was on the run. Several other witnesses and tenants of the building would come forward and say that they had seen Hickman at the apartments, and a number even said that they saw him on the day of the drop-off with Perry Parker, walking out of the apartment complex carrying several bundles of wrapped-up newspaper. For the time being, the police were at least sure that William Hickman was the man they were searching for. Though he was evading capture, even as just about every person on the West Coast was in search for him, the police started to collect information about Hickman's past. William Hickman had begun his criminal career as early as the age of 11, when he would begin to steal candy from stores on a regular basis. His crimes would slowly start to escalate through his teenage years. He would meet and partner up with a fellow teenager hooligan, Willoughby Hunt, and would commit a series of armed robberies. In 1926, William Hickman and his partner in crime, Willoughby Hunt, would move to Los Angeles to stay with Hunt's grandparents. Hunt would later say that, in one of their conversations, Hickman would say that he wished he could convince somebody to chop up his accomplice's grandparents and throw their body parts along the highway. On Christmas Eve of 1926, Hickman and Hunt would partake in holding up a Los Angeles drugstore. Their getaway was not fast enough, though, and several police officers responded. A shootout would occur, and Hickman and Hunt would shoot one of the cops in the stomach and would shoot and kill the store clerk, Clarence Ivey. The two went into hiding, trying to let the manhunt for them die down from the drugstore shootout and murder. The pair eventually decided to try and get actual jobs for themselves, and ended up working in a bank as messengers in downtown LA. While at the bank, William Hickman would meet the chief clerk of that bank, Perry Parker, and learn about his twin daughters. Shortly after the pair began working at the bank, Wilby Hunt's grandfather would withdraw most of the money he had in the bank, a sizable amount. Just several hours after this, his body would be found under a bridge. The older man did not have any of the money he withdrew from the bank on him, but he did have a number of suicide notes left in his pockets. The death was deemed highly suspicious, as it was clear that suicide notes had been written by two different people. No one at the time suspected William Hickman, though, and he continued his low-level job at the bank. Always the criminal, Hickman would forge over $400 worth of checks before the bank caught on to his actions. He was fired, arrested, and spent a few months in jail. After getting out, Hickman immediately returned to his criminal ways, robbing people on the streets in exchange for a few dollars at a time. Frustrated with the low amount of money payoff for this high-risk crime, Hickman started to devise a plan. A plan that, in his mind, was a guaranteed way of getting a big payout. A plan that would involve his former employer, Perry Parker, and Hickman's knowledge of his children. For seven days after the discovery that Marion Parker had been murdered, William Hickman lived up to his nickname. The fox continued to evade capture, despite several close calls and a large number of witness sightings. Eventually, though, the criminal's luck and street smarts would run out. In Echo, Oregon, two officers spotted a man whose resemblance was very similar to the face on all the wanted posters. The pair of cops approached the man, pulled out their guns, and said he was under arrest. Rather than attempt to flee, Hickman almost casually put his hands up and smiled at the police officers. While he was being handcuffed, Hickman asked the police officers if they thought he was going to be as famous as Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb, 
the so-called thrill killers, who had murdered a young boy in Chicago in what had been the national crime story of its time. While on a train from Oregon to Los Angeles, Hickman would openly talk to the officers about his crime. Hickman, however, said that while he had worked at kidnapping Marion Parker, he had not been the one to murder the child. He said he'd been working with another criminal, and it was this other man who had actually killed Marion. Hickman told the police about this incident, saying, He said she was crying and he tried to stop her, or something like that, and he figured out the safest way would be to go ahead and fix it that way. If this fellow had not killed her, it would have come out all right, as we had planned, because I am sure she didn't want to die. Hickman's story to the police was not particularly believed, as he had demonstrated that he was a smooth-talking liar on multiple occasions. His alibi ultimately fell apart when the criminal that Hickman said had been the one to commit the murder was proven false, as that man had actually been in jail for several days, during which time Marion had been killed. During his trip to Los Angeles, William Hickman also confessed about the drugstore holdup that had resulted in the death of the shop clerk, Clarence Ivy. The police almost couldn't get Hickman to stop talking, as for hours he confessed to dozens of other robberies and crimes he had committed. Hickman did not seem to have any remorse for any of his crimes, but instead kept bringing up questions about his fame, asking the police how widespread his story was, how many police had been looking for him, and how big his name was in the city. While talking about his crime as the fox, Hickman told the officers watching over him, This is going to get interesting before it's over. Marion and I were good friends, and we really had a good time when we were together, and I really liked her. I'm sorry that she was killed. Though he had been caught... Hickman almost immediately began to work on his upcoming defense from the moment he was captured. Around this time, California had recently passed a new law regarding a groundbreaking change of defense in court. California would be the first state to recognize defense by insanity as a viable defense strategy for violent criminals. The new law read, If the defendant pleads only not guilty by reason of insanity, then the question whether the defendant was sane or insane at the time of the defense was committed shall be promptly tried. In such trial, the jury shall return a verdict either that the defendant was sane at the time the offense was committed, or that he was insane at the time the offense was committed. If the verdict or finding be that the defendant was sane at the time the offense was committed, the court shall sentence the defendant as provided by law. Always the talker, Hickman's incessant need to tell others what he thought would eventually help lead to his downfall. Even while he waited in a jail cell in Oregon on the day of his arrest before he would be sent to Los Angeles, Hickman would have a conversation with one of his guards, saying, Wonder if I could pretend that I was crazy. How does a fellow act when he is crazy? Soon after his return to Los Angeles, Hickman's trial would begin on January 25th of 1928. Huge crowds would gather outside the Hall of Justice, thousands of people screaming for Hickman's life. Headlines across the city reflected this, stating things such as, Hickman must hang. Celebrities and famous Hollywood figures arrived to watch the trial, as Judge Carlos Hardy had reserved seats in this courtroom for such people. The whole city of L.A. followed the trial, reporters trying to hear every piece of detail to write in their newspaper columns. Hickman would begin the trial by entering a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. However, even from the start, it appeared as if Hickman's defense would not hold up at all. The prosecution put on witnesses who testified to Hickman's state of mind, all of them saying he appeared rational. Hickman's own conversation about his scheme of trying out the insanity defense was even brought up. One of the detectives who rode with Hickman from Oregon to Los Angeles testified about a conversation he had with a man 
in which Hickman asked what judge would oversee his trial. When he was told, Hickman responded by saying, he won't hang me, he doesn't believe in capital punishment, but I guess I'll throw a fit for him in court anyway. William Hickman's trial would last for 10 days. At the conclusion, the jury deliberated for 43 minutes. After, they stated they had reached a verdict, and the trial concluded. Hickman had been found sane, and was found guilty of murder. He was to be given the death penalty by way of hanging. When news reached out to the 2,000 people waiting outside the court building, a huge cheer erupted. As he was being escorted out of the courtroom, reporters shouted over each other to try and ask Hickman questions. When one reporter asked how the man felt his trial went and his verdict of death by hanging, Hickman flashed a smile and joked, the state won by a neck. Hickman would be sent to prison and wait for his execution. During this time, he would give several statements and further confessions. Hickman would say that he had come up with the idea of kidnapping and the ransom amount as a way to pay his way through college. The prosecution, however, stated that his motive was purely revenge against Perry Parker, the man who had cost him his job and had sent him to jail previously. Many others believe that Hickman never intended on returning Marion alive at all. Based on several comments Hickman made after his arrest and his general attitude, it was also widely believed that Hickman wanted notoriety and fame, and that part of him was hoping to get arrested. In a way, Hickman got his wish, as his face would be plastered across newspapers all over the country following his arrest, and many reporters seek to gain access to the murderer for exclusive interviews. Hickman would eventually give out disturbing details about his time with Marion. He would later confess that he had initially tried to murder Marion by strangling the child. However, this would prove difficult, and when she continued to start breathing again, Hickman said he had cut her throat. In a gruesome and disturbing twist, even after these multiple attempts at her life, Hickman said that he believed that she was still barely alive when he started to dismember her. After the deranged killer began to cut her into pieces, he realized that he might not get any money at all unless he could prove to her father, Perry Parker, that she was alive. This is when Hickman stuffed her body with towels and rigged up a wire device around her head and eyes to make it appear as if she was alive and had her eyes open. William Hickman would stay at San Quentin Prison until the day of his execution. The man seemed amused that the room was full of reporters who were there to see him at his final moments. Hickman was led up the gallows, and a black hood was placed over his head. The trap doors would fall, and Hickman would hang. However, while death by hanging usually results in an instant death with the breaking of the neck, the fox would not have a quick or easy death. By either chance, or perhaps design, Hickman did not fall straight down, but to the side. He would slam his head hard against the wooden side of the gallows. For several minutes, the man would violently struggle and jerk from side to side, until finally his movement stopped. The prison doctor would check on Hickman, pressing his stethoscope against the man's chest, even as his body continued to sway from side to side, and would eventually announce that the fox was deceased. William Hickman's cause of death was not by broken neck, but by strangulation. While many people across Los Angeles, as well as the country, rejoiced that the evil man who went by the nickname the fox was dead, the disturbing events of the crime were still remembered. During this time in America, there would be a string of such violent kidnapping cases. The Marion Parker case was one of the most notorious and widespread examples of such a crime, and would be an example of how the American public could be caught up in such a story and collectively call for deadly vengeance against anyone carrying out such a shocking crime.
as horrifying as the kidnapping and death of Marion Parker was, other similar acts would come to light in the following years to eclipse the case, such as the kidnapping of fellow Los Angeles native Christine Collins' child Walter, or the famous story of the Lindbergh kidnapping. For some time, however, the death of Marion Parker was considered by many across America to be one of the most sadistic and cruel murders in the history of the country, and the actions of the Fox, William Hickman, would be called out as the crime of the century. Thank you all for listening to this episode of the Strange Matters podcast. If you have any feedback about this disturbing case, or if you have suggestions for future episode topics, please feel free to write into the podcast. You can reach the show at our email, strangematterspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow and message Strange Matters at our social media sites on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until the next episode of the Strange Matters podcast, take care, everybody.